Welcome back to another episode in our series on the covenants. In lesson two, we saw the covenant with Adam, where God made an agreement with Adam and Eve that he gave them a garden, he gave them a, a place and a mission and a purpose, and he gave them a chance to live life with him in, in peace, um, in a sinless world, in a sin unstained by corruption, by death. We saw the fall of Adam and Eve and the result that had on all of humankind. We saw the, the promise that is so dear to the covenants, that is so um, blatant in the scriptures, as we'll see, of Genesis 3.15, that even though the woman would be bruised, that the seed of Adam, the seed of Adam and Eve, would, would come to crush the head of the serpent. So now going on to the next major covenant is the covenant with Noah. So we have that in um, Genesis 5, 6, down into chapter 9. So the covenant with Noah is sometimes called the Noahic covenant. So you can hear that word Noah in Noahic. Or it's also called the covenant of preservation. So if you remember last time we talked about a, a big um, picture of covenant theology, of a traditional way of talking about the covenants with a covenant of redemption, a covenant of works, and a covenant of grace. And so you'll notice there's no covenant of preservation in there. There's no Noahic covenant mentioned. So this would fall under that period between the fall of Adam and the coming of Christ or the, the end of this age where there's that looking forward of God's people, of the people who God has called out to look forward for that promise of Christ. So they've been promised, you know, in Genesis 3.15 that God's people would be aware of that promise of the seed of the expected Messiah, of the Savior to come, but not necessarily knowing what exactly that would look like. So as we move through the Noahic covenant into Abraham and Moses and David, we'll see a narrowing focus of God's promise being filled out more completely. So we have sort of a silhouette of the Messiah that we expect to come. So what's happening between where we left off in Genesis 3 and where we're going to pick up in Genesis 6 is that Cain and Abel happened. So there was an obvious sin where one man killed another that Adam and Eve continued for their almost thousand years of life to have descendants, to have children. So we have a, a great lengthy genealogy in the book of Genesis explaining here's the descendants of Adam, here's the ones who came after him. Um, leading up to that then is, is the immediate context of Genesis, of, of chapter 5. It records the birth of Noah, who's the next significant figure who the covenant is with. So Noah's name is significant in that it indicates rest from our works. So we mentioned in our last episode that the idea of Adam in the Garden of Eden was not just endless toil. It wasn't fruitless toil. It was this idea that God would give Adam rest from his works, that he gave him a good work, and that in the pattern of God's creation, ending on the seventh day in rest, so man would find this pattern of, of work and of labor and of rest in their finished work in perfect life with God. And so we expect something then based on Noah's name, based on Moses writing this down in Genesis for us, that there's some sort of rest that will come with this person Noah. But we have a problem before we get to the covenant with Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, I'll read a few verses. So Genesis chapter 6, if you have your Bible, I'll read the first six verses. Genesis chapter 6, 
Now it came about when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. And then we can jump down, skipping verse 4 to verse 5. This is a, a very key verse. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. So you can imagine there's this promise we have of Genesis 3.15 that a seed will come to, to redeem all of humanity. But there's a problem. If, if every thought and intention of the human heart is evil continually, verse 6 tells us, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So there's this idea that you expect for Adam and Eve to have descendants, for those descendants to multiply, for the earth to be populated and filled as, as time goes on. But there's this problem where evil's abounding, that people are killing one another, that they're plotting destruction and, and evil and, and hardship for other people just out of spite of, of, of doing wrong. That it's not like there were a few righteous here and there and then out there is some evil group, but that Every human heart in this wicked and corrupt earth that's been stained by sin does evil continually. To the point that God himself, who made this creation, and in Genesis 1 and 2, he made it good. He declared it to be very good. That now he regrets that he had ever made mankind to begin with. So in God's righteous and holy anger, he desired to put an end to this, this evil creation, this God-hating creation. But instead of just putting an end to them, of, of wiping out the whole earth, he, he did something significant. He declares in verse 7 that he will blot out man, that he will remove them from the earth. Then in chapter 6, verse 8, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So that verse can mean a couple of things. It can mean that Noah was righteous and upstanding and you know followed these certain rules and laws, but that can't be what it means. It, it has to mean that God found favor in Noah, that he set Noah apart from himself, that maybe there was a great measure of common grace in Noah that caused him to not be as evil as those around him. But God chose Noah and his immediate family, and he set them apart to preserve them. And so we go on then, and, and we see in the coming verses that the wickedness was great, that God saw Noah, and even he remembered Adam, he remembered his promise that he wouldn't allow this, this line to come to an end until the Savior had come, that he had kept one for himself, that this seed that we're looking for, even though in this new covenant that we live in, that we know it's Christ, that Noah can be a type of Christ, of one righteous in a wicked earth who will live a life unto God. So we have in chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, instructions for the ark. So God sets out a plan for Noah and says, okay, here's what I want to do. I want to destroy all life on the earth because of the great wickedness. But I want you and your family and these instructions that I give you to build a large ark, to take creation, to take vegetation into the ark with you as a means of preserving a remnant or a small portion of this rotten, corrupt humanity. And then in verse 18, let me read it, of chapter 6. He says, God says to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. 
So we see this clear declaration by God in chapter 6 before the ark was built that he's, he's going to flood the earth, he's going to kill all of creation, but he set Noah and his family apart in a specific way to make a covenant with them, to make a promise with them that he will abide by. So going on 19 through 22, there's, there's an echo of Eden where, where God you know, sets out this certain part of creation from him that, you know, as the flood happens, as life is washed away, that there's this sense of the same thing, water, that's judgment, is also saving. So if you're inside the ark, if you're covered under protection by God, then there will be no destruction for you. There will be no death. There will be no harm that comes to you because the ark of God protects you. But if you're outside the ark, that water that is keeping your boat afloat and saving you, if you're outside the ark, that water is judgment. It's God's judgment on evil. And so then we see where the flood happens in verse 7, or sorry, chapter 7. The flood subsides in chapter 8. So Noah and his family are in the ark. They ride out the storm, so to speak. They trust God that he's going to not have the, the rain come forever and that the rain does finally end. The water subside. Noah sends out a bird to go check and see if there's um, vegetation, if there's a place for the bird to land. And finally, the ark lands on a mountain. And this is significant because the Garden of Eden, from what we know in, in Genesis, was, was on a mountain. It was a, a high place separated out from just common land that God had set Adam to live life before him. And we know that Adam failed. He, he failed his relationship with God. But that Noah, in a sense, is given that same chance. So when I say that there's an a echo of Eden, there's this sort of picture of a new creation almost. So we know that the earth didn't pass away and God didn't make a new earth. It's the same earth. But the way in which God sort of resets everything gives Noah almost a second chance and says, okay, this is humanity's chance to, to continue on, to fill the earth, to have the seed to come. But the difference between Eden and the earth that Noah found himself in was that that sin that we mentioned in the heart of people before, that every thought was evil continually, that sin nature, that sinful heart didn't go away with the flood. That the problem, even though it was outside the ark, it was also inside the ark. It was inside the heart of Noah and his family. That they were still sinful people, unable to keep their covenant obligation to God, in need of a Savior to save them. So the flood subside, Noah lands, they get out of the ark. He has finally his promised covenant with God. So going on down through um, chapter 9, let me read a, a section of verses. So Genesis chapter 9, if you have your Bible, starting in verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So that sounds very similar to what Adam and Eve had from God in that God gave them every green thing in Eden except for one forbidden fruit. So verse 4, Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So you see this, this reminder from God that men are still made in God's image, even if that image is tarnished by sin, and that he gives them instructions to not kill one another 
and to be fruitful and multiply. So there's this sort of protection that God builds in as commands for all of creation, all of human creation, that will keep this, this need for a covenant of preservation from happening again. So if you imagine a family trying to populate and have children, as long as you have children, and as long as you don't kill each other, you're going to continue to multiply. So going on in verse 8 of chapter 9, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. So it's clear then who God makes his covenant with. He promised it to Noah before the flood, and now he's making it a reality. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh never again shall be cut off by the flood of the water. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So there's the promise that we have. If, if we're thinking now about the covenant itself, the promise is that God will never destroy the earth again. There will never be a flood which consumes all of creation, that he will allow the earth to continue so long as there is an earth. And then he says that, uh, verse 12, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. So there was no specific sign for the covenant with Adam, but there is a sign that God gives to Noah and for all of his descendants after to know that God made this promise to not destroy the earth. He says in verse 13, I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in every cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And then finally in verse 17, And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So maybe you noticed as I was reading that passage, that is very, very repetitive. It says God, over and over, he says to his creation, this is my covenant, my agreement with all of creation, dependent on me as the everlasting God, that I will not destroy the earth, that I will give this sign of my bow set in the clouds, that when the rain comes and you see that rainbow, you'll know that I am not going to destroy the earth again. So maybe you've had that experience, you know, if there's a heavy rain, maybe you live in an area with, with hurricanes or typhoons that come through, that it rains for hours and hours and days and days and water piles up and Maybe you wonder, is this going to be it? Are we just going to float away? Is the house going to be destroyed? Is my family going to be okay? And God set his bow in the cloud to promise that he will not destroy the earth in that manner. And so we've already mentioned the, the laws that were given to Noah, that you don't kill one another or you will be killed, and that be fruitful and multiply. So it's given, as we just read in these verses, to Noah, to all of his descendants as a as a covenant with creation. And then we asked the question last time with Adam of who's the head of the covenant? Who's in and who's out? And so this covenant was very clearly made with Noah and his descendants. So we talked briefly in the last lesson about this, this idea of a, a kingdom of creation, that it's not so specific as we're not to the nation of Israel yet. We're only in this, this general creation, this new beginning with Noah. So these 
these laws, these instructions for don't murder and be fruitful and multiply apply to all of creation. That the covenant is with creation so that everybody is in the covenant. So the promise is for all who live life on earth, even if they don't love and know God. And then the sign of the promise was God's bow as an everlasting covenant. So that's something of significance there for us. It's that, you know, it's, it's easy to, to read these passages and to think, well, that happened so many years ago. There's, there's no relevance. But what we'll see, we saw it with, with God's grace and mercy he showed Adam. We saw it with God's mercy that he showed to Noah and his family. That there's an, a sense in which these covenants are unconditional. That they're not dependent on men, even though God makes the covenant with men. That God, as we'll learn in future lessons, has set himself before the foundations of the world to make this promise that he will send his son, that his people will be redeemed, that he will be their God, they will be his people. So covenants in many ways, and God's work in creation in many ways, it depends solely on God and, and, and who he is and his faithfulness and his perfection and his beauty and his, and his unthwartable will to do what he desires to do, which is always good and is always right. So lastly, we have, we've, we've covered the context, what leads up to the covenant with Noah. We've covered now the covenant itself of what sort of agreement did God make with the people, and now the result. So if we were to go on and read in chapter 9 and even into chapter 10, we would see the result of what was Noah's response? What were his descendants' response? So most immediately, Noah built an altar and he offered worship and praise to God and said, Thank you, Lord, for, for what you have done. Uh, later on, we see that Noah planted a vineyard, so he was cultivating the ground, that he made grapes and he drank wine, and that he became drunk. And there was a curse on his descendants. So you see that 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 result of the fall, the result of sin, is still on this earth, even though it's been washed by the water that God sent. And then we see of, of, of beyond just the immediate context of the covenant people, of, of Noah's descendants. So because we're here speaking, you know, all these years after Noah, that, that people continued to, to have children, to multiply, that there was no need for God to renew the earth with water because he promised he wouldn't that creation continued to expand, that um, humans were born, that they were fruitful, that they multiplied. Um, if we were to go on, there's the Tower of Babel where people try to uh, raise their fists at God and say, we're not going to spread out and multiply. We're going to build a tower up to you. And then to lead into our next lesson, we arrive at chapter 12 of Genesis. So we read about all the generations of Noah, all of his sons, all of his sons' sons, his great-grandsons, all the way down to his eight-time great-grandson is Abraham. So if you think for a minute about the significance of the genealogies that we've seen from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12, you see the significance of the importance of having that recorded history. So first, for, for Adam's descendants leading up to Noah, then we have this, this interruption in this big picture of Noah and the covenant with him and what God did. We have this promise to Noah's descendants to leading out with all these children and children's children and in life and death and coming all the way up to the person of Abraham who was born. So that's what we'll speak about in the next lesson is Abraham. So there was a realization of the promises. So God made promises that he wouldn't destroy the earth. They were realized immediately. They, uh, Noah and his descendants landed on the earth. In the future that there was no 
more destruction, that the earth still spins, it's still going because God has kept the seasons going as he promised. And we know that finally, ultimately, that the seed has come in the person of Christ, that this line was preserved through the preservation of being fruitful and multiplying and not killing one another in murder. And so what we're going to see now is, is a shift. So in these last two lessons, we've talked about um, covenants with creation, with, with Adam and with Noah. And we're going to narrow in more, more narrowly on Abraham and his descendants, which will be a certain line all the way until Christ comes, that it, it narrows in to, to find out who exactly this seed is that we expect to come, that God's made this promise, he's going to fulfill it. So please, uh, before the next lesson, if you're reading along in the scriptures, if you've read about Adam, you've read about Noah, you can go on to Genesis 12 and 15. That's what we'll cover in the next lesson regarding God's separation out, his, his bringing Abraham out and making many grand promises to him that we even now are beneficiaries of. So thank you for watching this lesson. I hope it was a blessing and God bless you.